Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. So today we have uh, the writer and author and journalist Benjamin Riley uh, on the podcast. Um, thank you, Ben, for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm well. Um, Benjamin Law, Benjamin Riley might be. Oh, sorry. Let me start that again. <laughs> Let me start that again. Sorry, I've got too many Benjamins. Hi everyone, it's Simon here. This week I had the pleasure of interviewing the journalist and author Benjamin Law. In our conversation we talk about Benjamin's quarterly essay, Moral Panic 101, in which he delves into the safe school scandal that occurred in 2016. We talk about how Benjamin came about to write this essay, and his views on the safe school scandal, as well as his views on the marriage plebiscite that is occurring right at this time. If you haven't listened already, Benjamin Riley and I talk about Benjamin Law's essay in our last episode, so you should go and check that out. Just one quick note, uh, I had to do this interview over the phone, so unfortunately the audio is maybe not quite as good as what you might be expecting from an episode of Queers. I'm sorry about that, but please uh, stay with us as we think the interview is really great. So sorry about the audio, but please uh, stick through because I think it's really worth it. Today we have the writer and journalist Benjamin Law on the podcast with us. Thank you, Benjamin, for joining us. How are you doing today? Good Simon. I'm really, really well. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for joining us. So you wrote the, uh, the latest quarterly essay, Moral Panic 101, um, Equality, Acceptance and the Safe School Scandal. I'm not sure if you, uh, if you listen to our podcast, we actually spoke about the quarterly essay in our last episode, if you've happened to catch it. Oh, I saw you do that. I, I, I'm always like freaked out when people are talking about, about my work. So I haven't listened to it yet, but I saw that you did the last episode. I'm very, very... Very chuffed. Yeah, well, uh, maybe go and have a listen to that, and for our listeners, you should do so too. But maybe uh, for people who haven't heard that episode or people who haven't read the essay, could you tell us a little bit about why you decided to write the essay and sort of give us a summary of what you argue in the essay? Okay, so uh, by the end of uh, 2016, we had a situation where the Australian newspaper had been indefatigably covering Safe Schools, an initiative that was designed to protect and include LGBTIQ youth at schools. Um, they'd been focusing on it for months and months and months, nearly the entire year. And it came to a point where in November there was a young kid in the state of Brisbane who was possibly queer himself or had at least expressed distress over um, questions about his sexuality. And he took his own life. And I am a Queenslander to myself originally. I heard about the news when I was in China on work and there was a lot of commentary around that time from people saying that if something like safe schools existed, maybe a kid like Tyrone Unsworth 
could have still lived. It's no secret that homophobia is is such a deep and entrenched problem in Australian society, but especially for young people as well who don't necessarily have the tools and the equipment to be, you know, to, to stand up to that kind of harassment and abuse. That period of your life can be a really, really tough time. But I guess in, in, in writing this essay, I wanted to ask two questions, which was which I didn't feel had been answered in all that media coverage of Safe Schools at all, which was, one, what actually is Safe Schools? And two, when we talk about the controversial Safe Schools program, how did it actually become controversial? And these were things that I wanted to, to answer in the book. Okay, excellent. Well, maybe let's go into those two quick questions. Mm. Safe Schools is actually, in the grand scheme of things, a relatively small program. Uh, yeah, really what, small. What is it, and or what was it, I guess, because things have changed with it, but also mm. why do you think, based on your research, that it became so important to conservative forces, and then I guess in turn to you know queer Australians, because I think before the controversy, it was also relatively unknown within sort of queer circles in, in, in Australia. Yeah, I think you raise a really good point, Simon, because when I started talking about safe schools, you know, a lot of people were going online, Twitter, uh, offering their hot takes, and I certainly did especially in late 2016. But now I look back and having researched the essay, I realise that one of the big problems that we have is both critics and supporters of safe schools alike don't really know what the program is. So what is the program? Well, Safe Schools Coalition Australia was based on uh, another program that was state-based called Safe Schools Coalition Victoria. And in the first instance, it was getting principals and teachers on board to sign a pledge to make sure, to, to basically proclaim that they would do their best to keep LGBTIQ kids uh, safe on campus. From there, they had the option of doing principal teacher training if they wanted to. That's basically a half-hour PowerPoint presentation saying this is what homophobia does to kids, these are the stats, these are the higher truancy rates of LGBTIQ kids at school, the higher rates of non-completion comparison to their cisgender and heterosexual peers. So it's pretty remedial 101 stuff, but it's a lot of information that teachers around Australia don't actually know. And a lot of principals and teachers don't actually feel equipped in terms of how to address these issues or how to deal with homophobia in the schoolyard. There's been a demand from the schools from a long time. So in a way, arguably, it's been school kind of initiated. Schools have asked for resources mm. like this. And Safe Schools was an $8 million initiative over several years funded by the federal government to basically answer their calls. And for those of us who, you know, $8 million sounds like a lot of money, but you compare that to the National Chaplaincy Program, which was way over $200 million over a similar period as well. And now you're trying, starting to understand, or at least I was starting to understand, what a small and modest program this was. When people talk about safe schools being, you know, LGBTIQ activists accessing classrooms and teaching your kids about LGBTIQ when they barely know the three R's, that's a, that's a deep and fundamental misrepresentation and misunderstanding of what the program was. And I think in, in reading the essay uh, for readers and in writing the essay for myself, I think a lot of people, including myself, have been surprised. Given that, I've got a couple of questions to lead on from that, but mm. you know, first of all, why do you think it became so important to conservatives, you know, who, who really were the ones who sort of turned this into a sort of a national story and turned a program that was quite small and, and didn't really have much coverage and, and generally had bipartisan support? Why, mm. why do you think that they turned that into a front page story? Yeah, why did it happen? Look, uh, I've, got, I've got a few theories about this, some of which I touch on in the quarterly essay. But in the first instance, it's a really good story. This idea that adults, especially queer adults, are accessing young people to shape their mind to be more accepting of LGBTIQ people, which then suggests that they're promoting 
being gay or trans that then suggests that they've got an ideology or an agenda to run. It's very much speaking to those kind of 1950s hand-wringing moral anxieties of gays in the classroom or gays basically being conflated with pedophiles. It's a very, all of those ingredients are there for a decent moral panic. Adults, anything to do with sexuality, let's also keep in mind that sex education is still a really fraught and sensitive subject in Australian schools as well. So I guess all the ingredients were there to whip up a really good kind of um, fear exercise. The second thing is we can't underestimate the extent, I think, to which old school nefarious homophobia and transphobia still exists in Australian society and especially amongst pockets of power. I think the same-sex marriage, I don't want to call it a vote because it's not a vote, plebiscite for mandatory surveys is statistically accurate. It's it's a, it's a vox pop. But, um, you know, what this $122 million vox pop has really shown us is that, you know, queer Australians aren't imagining this. There are still deep, rich reservoirs of naked homophobia. Just recently there was that quadrant piece you know, saying that when it comes down to it, homosexual people are basically abnormal. And this is a condoning of abnormal behaviour if we legalise same-sex marriage. You've got elected senators basically saying that if same-sex marriage is legalised, it's paving the way towards people marrying the Sydney Harbour Bridge. It's a very yeah, handsome yeah. bridge, but I don't think many people want to marry it. And so I guess maybe that's another thing as well, that there are that there are people who still believe on a fundamental level that gay people have no place in the classroom. And I guess another thing is that these are, these are parental fears that are best expressed in something like that school. And what I mean by that is when you think of something like people learning about transgender identity or the fact that trans youth exists or how to be inclusive of transgender young people, Immediately, a lot of adults who don't know much about transgender people or about the trans community immediately think of all of, all their fears for their child. They think of adults um, moulding a child's gender identity before they're, too, before they're old enough to even know such things exist. They're thinking about medical and unnecessary surgical intervention, and a lot of people do immediately think of that when they think of transgender children. So it was kind of braiding together neatly a lot of anxieties that adults feared toward, fear about their children generally, whether they are progressive or conservative. And schools kind of embodied a lot of those boogeyman fears that parents have. And do you think that that's in particular, there was a lot of focus on trans kids throughout the campaign and that, and that is something that we're seeing not just in Australia but around the world, you know, in the United States has been a big turn um, from conservative forces into trans rights and, and the fear of trans kids with like uh, the bathroom bills and those kinds yeah. of things. Do you think it's this sort of fear of the unknown that is, is leading the sort of conservatives towards uh, focusing on trans kids in particular, or is it something bigger than that? Yeah, I think when you look at the United States especially, the way that transgender youth have been, has been weaponised, have been weaponised is, is really worrying, and it's easy ground for them to wage a culture war on. One of the, one of the things that I propose in the quarterly essay is that in a lot of ways, same-sex attracted people, so the LGB part of the LGBTIQ community, have kind of really been accepted in Australia. And I know that same-sex marriage isn't the perfect metric of acceptance by any mm. by any measure, but, you know, the ship has kind of sailed. Uh, that part of the community has, for better or worse, been presented as quite normalised, unthreatening, and 
just like you, which I think is kind of problematic in itself, but that's probably another conversation for another time. Yeah. But when it comes to when it comes to transgender people, this is still uh, a, you know trans people are a marginalised people even within the community as well. So when you think of the broader community who who are really really comforted by binaries, who um, feel safety in knowing what male is and what woman is, who feel very um, you know aggressively towards this idea of political correctness. Why can't things simply be like they were before? Why do we need to accommodate this whole new range and suite of identities? Trans people are really vulnerable in being used in these arguments. What I find really strange about those arguments is that we're kind of having hypotheticals about situations that, to my knowledge, just don't really exist. I mean, Mm. this idea that young trans kids can access surgery and hormones really easily in this country is laughable when you realise that trans people in Australia comparably to the rest of the world, are probably the people who have the most trouble accessing, um, you know, hormones or any kind of surgical affirmation um, procedures. When you think of, you know, trans women, you know, apparently going into bathrooms so they can, or people, men posing as trans women so they can look at female genitalia. I mean, if, if you're a woman using a bathroom generally, when was the last time you saw another woman's anatomy in the bathroom? Like, this? it's such strange... Um, hypotheticals, but they are stories that really take hold in the imagination quite quickly. The idea of perverts accessing lavatories to perv on your child, that, that really, that really gets, gets to people. I want to go back to that question about the importance of safe schools in the sort of Australian debate. And so we spoke about why it became important to conservative forces. I, I guess you also spoke about how the program itself was quite modest in its approach and didn't actually have that much funding. Um, and, mm. you know, in your research, you found that it was much more sort of or almost less radical than you thought it was. Yeah. Given that, do you think there's a potential that queer Australians have placed too much emphasis on this program and that, you know, when we see things like Best School Face Lives, um, that we're actually giving it too much power mm. in sort of response to the conservative attacks on it? Yeah, I think I think you might be onto something in a way because one of the one of the things that a lot of us left out with when you know, Tyrone Unsworth took his own life was Safe Schools would have saved his life. And I guess there's... I mean, on a really fundamental basic level, we just really don't know that. And when you look at the specifics of state schools as well, it's essentially, like I said, parents and teachers in charge signing a pledge to try to keep LGBTIQ kids safe. And a part of that pledge also has a caveat in the fine print saying that we as a signatories can't guarantee that because you can't really, mm. in a way. What I do think, and, and I don't want to necessarily funnel this conversation into, into blame or, or who did what, wrong and when, but it's really hard to take hold of the narrative when it's being framed so aggressively and strongly by, by a newspaper like The Australian, which has a lot of political heft, even if its readership is struggling and has been struggling over the years, it still can set the agenda in Canberra. And when you, when you pump out that many words about a program like Safe Schools, and obviously I think that case is way overstated for like what you say is a modest, um, what is a modest program. It's really hard to take control of the narrative back. And in some ways, you know, alternative titles for, for the essay that I wrote could have been, well, what the fuck was that about? Because, because in some ways, you know, the, the lot of, a lot of the conversation about queer rights in the last year and a half has funneled into two things and two things only, which is safe schools and which is same-sex marriage. There are so many other issues that the queer community can and should be talking about as well. 
Well, I think I needed to write this essay, and I think we need to have this discussion, is that Safe Schools has been co-opted and used in a very efficient manner by conservatives to basically run a fear campaign against the community in general. And when a lot of people at the centre of Safe Schools have been traumatised in terms of, you know, their work and their inability to do it, when people like Ros Ward have been personally targeted as well, it becomes a really personal campaign and a lot of people at the centre of safe schools were effectively told not to speak about safe schools as well. They weren't in a position to, so I feel, I, I think in some ways it's incumbent for other people, myself and others who can, to have that conversation because there's so much misinformation around it. Um, I think unfortunately it was the ball that was thrown to us. Now I guess it's up to us in terms of how we throw it back or what we want to do with it. Yeah, I think that's actually a, a sort of a worthwhile point moving on to the, sort of the next question I had. And, and you mentioned mm. at the start of that answer that you, you know, and you've mentioned a couple of times the, the suicide of Tyrone Unsworth as, as sort of being a driving force, I guess, behind you writing the, the essay. Um, and it also featured, it was, the first, it was the first thing you spoke about in the essay. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about why you started with that story in particular and why it was so important to you. I had huge reservations about starting the essay his death in a way because the last thing I wanted to do was to use someone's life and death as, as a narrative device. I, I I spoke to people who were close to Tyrone Unsworth as a part of this essay as well and this is this is a really tragic event that tore a hole in the fabric of the communities in which he lived. He's a young indigenous Queenslander and for the, the people who knew him at school, for people in his family as well. This is not something that you know. This is this is something that has deeply affected them. But after after I spoke to those people as well, I also thought it was perhaps responsible to make sure that people didn't forget about him. And certainly, the Australian newspaper, I think, was was an organisation that did forget about him. This is a this is a this is a newspaper that's written so many words on fake schools when it came to Tyrone Unsworth, who was a national and international media story as well. The Australian wrote zero articles on this kid. So one, I wanted to make sure that people remembered that story, the weight of that story, and who Tyrone Unsworth was. And I guess the other thing that I really wanted to do was to address something that seemed to have been lost in the conversation, which was why state schools formed in the first place. State schools as a program formed because of not just higher rates of truancy and non-completion at school and higher rates of bullying, I mean, bullying is such a bandied about term today that I feel like it's almost lost its impact. I mean, this, this was a child who was subjected to assault and abuse. And, and as many, as many LGBTIQ kids are today, and as many straight kids are today as well, you know, homophobia is not just something that affects queer, queer youth. And so, um, in all of this noise about, you know, what is safe schools and why we need to get rid of it, I think we, we lost the central point of the conversation, which is, well, why do state schools exist in the first place? At not one stage did the Australian talk to LGBTIQ youth in the coverage of state schools because I don't actually think they or the journalists who wrote those stories really care about LGBTIQ youth or what they go through at school. There are a lot of reports in the Australian that really challenge the stats that I quoted before. And when adults do that, 
to young children to say that their lives matter less than other kids' lives, I think that's really irresponsible, bordering on despicable. So I want to interrogate this a little bit further, I guess. I, 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 you know, I agree with you in terms of what you're saying about the Australians that are not engaging with young uh, LGBTIQ people, uh, and, and it's really notable how those voices are often missing from this debate mm. and missing from these discussions. One thing I do want to talk about, though, is I think that maybe potentially through your essay, and I, and I think potentially even more so through the campaign to stage those schools, and I think we saw mm. this very strongly, there was a very much a framing from from queer people as well, um, in particular, sort of framing young LGBTIQ people as inherently vulnerable or, you know, inherently vulnerable to both these attacks, but also just inherently vulnerable at school. Do you think there are risks to framing, you know, at both the defense of the safe schools in this way, or, but also just sort of framing young LGBTIQ Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. people in this way. Yeah, and look, I, I absolutely agree with you because um, one of the things that I bring up in the essay as well is... Um, how queer people, whether they're young or old, have kind of been framed as victims <laughs> the, entire, yeah, yeah. the entire time in the narrative as well. Um, you see that, in, for instance, in the very you know noble Beyond Blue campaign to combat homophobia that compares queerness or being gay to left-handedness. Like, imagine mm. being made to feel shit just for being left-handed. And I think one of the, the great things that Safe Schools did, especially in their optional resource, All of Us, which was, uh, you know, became the heart of the scandal later on, but this very, very wholesome resource did something quite revolutionary, which was to show kids being happy in their sexuality. And I think a lot of us, um, you know, who, who either haven't experienced bullying or have come through the other side as adults as well, who, who really cherish our queer identities as well, know that being queer is actually a joyous wonderful thing. That's something that we don't hear about very often, you know, in the mainstream media, the fact that, you know, being a lesbian is a rich and wonderful life, that being trans has a wonderful and amazing history and uh, history and culture and community that needs to be celebrated as well. So I totally take your point in that there is a risk of making, uh, of running and extending that narrative to that point where we are simply people being crushed <laughs> by the rest of society. Yeah, um, yeah. But at, the, but at the same time, I think um, because the narrative has swayed so far to the other side, which is that LGBTIQ youth don't deserve special treatment, that LGBTIQ youth having their own specialist program represents discrimination in and of itself, which is a narrative that has really, really taken hold in the mainstream media about the conversation of safe schools. Why don't redheads get their own anti-bullying campaign? Why don't Aboriginal kids have their own inclusivity programs? And a lot of those communities actually do in some way, shape or form. But it's, it's ignoring some fundamental reasons as to why safe schools formed in the first place. And I think safe schools as an initiative itself kind of address what you're talking about, which is to say, well, this isn't just simply an anti-bullying initiative actually. And that's something I tried to tease out in the essay as well. It's something that Ros Ward, who was one of the managers in Victoria and one of the co-architects of Safe Schools, caught a lot of flack for. 
where a lot of um, conservative commentators are like, well, if it's not an anti-bullying um, initiative, what is it exactly? Because I thought this was all about LGBTIQ kids being vulnerable and unsafe. Whereas, you know, I think I think if you are, um, if you've been a queer young person in Australia, you, you probably know that it's not just anti-bullying initiatives that you need, but, you know, uh, gestures and symbols and initiatives from your school and school community to that signal that you're welcome, to signal that you are not abnormal, and to signal that your school community has your back as well. So in that case, it was much more than that. And hopefully that's the side of space schools that I've, that I've outlined in the essay too. Yeah, and I think there's a challenge there, isn't there, about figuring out how you both deal with bullying whilst also empowering kids to be able to sort of be positive and think about the, the positives of their sexuality and their gender identity and, and dealing with both of those things at the same time can be quite difficult. Exactly, because to focus on bullying and the seriousness of it, and the stats do show that it is serious, to, to speak of that without being without that being the sole focus of our entire conversation is hard when so much of the conversation has swayed towards almost a denial that that bullying exists as well. So I guess it's also about who we're having a conversation with, um, and in my case, who the readership is about it as well. So let's go a little bit more in depth about the the attack here. In in our last episode of Queers, Benjamin Riley and I spoke about the sort of systemic approach that you took when tackling the sex school scandal and looking at this as being a bit more than just about you know a few bad individuals who are running an agenda, but sort of being centred in, 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 in particular parts of the Australian media and in Australian sure. government. Can you go into a little bit about how you saw this as being more of a systemic issue rather than just a sort of a few bad homophobes kind of issue? Yeah. Or, is that how you, or, or is that how you saw it? Yeah, absolutely. When I came into it, I knew that this wasn't just a, a queer story or a queer rights story. And if I was going to look at it in any kind of good faith, it needed to be a story that looked at the media. It's a media story. It's an education story. And it's a story about our communities as well. When you ask that question of how that happens, how this all happens, you can't, you can't look at how it happened without, without examining in <laughs> forensic and sometimes tedious detail, perhaps, how it blew up in, in the press and how Facebook blew up in federal politics um, and now state politics. One of the narratives that the Australian would have us believe is that it's a kind of an up and then binary, that it's conservatives against progressives, that it's religious against the godless, that it's activists versus moralists. And I'm really troubled by that kind of paradigm because I don't think it's necessarily true either. One of the shocking things that, well, one of the people, one of the things that people have found shocking about the essay when I talk about it is that they gasp when they realise that I'm still a subscriber to the Australian newspaper and they're like, haven't you just written this hideous thing about what, <laughs> what the Australian actually does? But, you know, I actually think the Australian is really capable and still pr- produces good journalism. I think that campaigns like this really undermine what is what can still be a great newspaper. Um, another example I give is the fact that, you know, the majority of Christians support same-sex marriage and that one of the biggest networks of Catholic schools in Australia, Edmund Wright Education Australia, has implemented their own version of safe schools, basically happily plagiarised the safe schools material and baked it into 
all of their school policy under under the the parameters of scripture, which is to say, when they when if parents ask you why you're implementing this policy, principals and teachers are obliged to point out these Christian policies and these particular Bible verses mm. as well. So so look to get to get back to your question, I think maybe it's pointing out something obvious, but bigotry usually is something that's an institutionalized thing. We often think of homophobia, we often think of racism and sexism as these individual acts often perpetrated on public transport that we can easily identify and name. Whereas, you know, homophobia is a systemic thing. It's baked into our parliamentary system in terms of how many how like how many queers are even represented in there. When we talk about the stats and say, look, maybe roughly one in eleven of us are somewhere on the LGBTIQ spectrum. How many people are there? We can probably name them on one hand. Those people making the decisions about our communities as well, that's an institutionalized thing. So when we talk about homophobia, I guess, you know, that, that is a, a structure, that is not an act. That is something that I think is quite pertinent here because we see how, you know, by simple acts of exclusion or silence as well, especially within policies that govern queer people's lives when they're young, that they can have effects on... Look, to give you an example, because I feel like this conversation is getting a bit abstract. Yeah, no, no, example of, no, but to give you an example of what I'm talking about, after I wrote this quarterly essay, of course I've had a lot of correspondence, <laughs> for better or for worse. One of the readers who got in touch with me said the reason why this piece has affected him so much is of his personal story of being queer at boarding school. And in some ways, he wouldn't he wouldn't classify what he endured as bullying in its purest form, but the names and the the jeers and the good natured jeers that we sometimes get combined yeah. with a complete non acknowledgement of your existence to the point where you know this reader went went to his chaplain and his chaplain advised him to get medical attention. That's that's kind of you know homophobia manifested through the school system there. These schools aren't equipped to accommodate for their young queer people, just as I think, you know, federal politics isn't equipped to accommodate right now for LGBTIQ Australians. That's something that I wanted to look at. It's not about the individual acts. I'm not out to get a vendetta against very specific Australian journalists, even though I think they need to be accountable for what they've written. This is more about how these scandals and how attacks on our communities happen in the first place by people in positions of power and responsibility. Just, just to build on that, one question that I'm thinking about a lot in relation to this is, I guess, what role, you know, for, for a term that we, you know, we could potentially find a better term, but what role is sort of general public plays in this? So, you, you know, you mentioned before about, and, and you mentioned in the essay about how despite all the attacks, the, the schools, you know, the numbers of schools who want to be part of part of the program increased. You mentioned just before about this uh, Catholic organisation that is, you know, school organisations who's created their own program mm-hmm. that's similar. And, and also I've seen polling, and polling is a little bit mixed, but I've seen, uh, you know, polling throughout the campaign that showed that safe schools remained relatively popular in the sort of general mm-hmm. community. 
So do we think, at least in terms of the impact that this has on the community, and, and acknowledging that obviously the, the Australian campaign had an impact on federal politics because they've now defunded the program federally, but do you mm. think that we may have overplayed the potential impact that you know an, a newspaper like The Australian could have on the perceptions of what you might call the general community or teachers or school principals, etc.? It's, it's really possible, actually. And I think what's strange in all of this is that you know The Australian is a newspaper that does hold political sway but as I mentioned before, like all newspapers, is struggling for, for actual number sales and readership, right? Yeah. Um, federal parliamentarians, um, especially in the current Turnbull government, do hold power, but at the same time, like their balance of power is very, very tenuous at the moment. These are kind of organisations and institutions that are kind of in a precarious position of power. And there is, I think, a real discrepancy between leadership and institutions versus say, in the Australian case, readership, uh, in politicians' cases in terms of their constituents, and in the church's case, like, I think there is this kind of discrepancy between leadership and the actual congregation as well, you know, considering how hard Anglican and Catholic churches are going same-sex marriage versus sentiment from Christian communities in Australia. That doesn't discount the fact that those people in power do call a lot of the shots in terms of, like you say, real outcomes like the non-renewal of the Safe Schools program. So in some ways, I think it's less about us overstating the case and, um, you know, overstepping the mark and more, again, this comes to victim blame or, or just putting blame on people. But it's mm. more, I think, about other people overstating the case in terms of how much attention something like this warrants. And I think and I think the, really, um, the real shame in all of this is that there... Like all, like all programs, like all initiatives, like all federal policies, there would have probably been room in safe schools for it to be improved as a resource for principals and teachers and kids, right? But yeah. when you've got, when you've got, like, when you've got a powerful, um, a powerful newspaper like The Australian with political text from day one editorialising for why it should be dismantled, that conversation becomes completely completely smothered. You cannot have that conversation in good faith when people have already made up their minds on day one during the national conversation about it. Mm. So I think in some ways, as much as we've heard noise from LGBTIQ communities and the progressive left about safe schools, in a lot of other pockets as well, maybe in pockets to which we're not usually exposed as well, the, the noise about safe schools is actually is quite loud. And, and like you say, probably loud in a minority, but just a very vocal minority that happens to be able to affect real outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, a couple more questions for you. I just want to move on to a completely different topic or similar topic. We're, at the moment, you know, we're all embroiled in this sort of postal survey on marriage equality um, and in the middle of that campaign. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the campaign so far, and maybe in particular from the yes side, you know, we've spoken a bit about the sort of homophobia from the no side. Look, I, I think there are some double standards playing between the yes and, and the no campaigns at the moment. There have been really good essays written about this. Sean Kelly wrote a piece, I think, for the monthly blog about this. That's just covered my thoughts quite well. Because I've always had this kind of, like, foggy anxiety about the fact that people who are on the side of marriage equality really feel this, you know, palpable anxiety that in order to get this past the line, we all need to be on our very, very best behaviour. 
And I know that when, you know, that when something happens in anyone who supports same-sex marriage, any kind of transgression or any kind of violation of the rule book is seen as tarnishing the entire Yes campaign. But the No yeah. campaign is not held to those standards, which is not, which is not surprising, but also I think you know, just just fundamentally unfair to the point of you know bordering on what's comical. You know, just 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 the other day, one of my friends had the rainbow flag pulled from her house as well, set on fire, and her flatmate was obviously scared by this kind of violation of their property as well. That's not going to be painted on the no campaign, and I feel like this kind of happens with any kind of push within any rights movement. That, you know, if you're a part of a community wanting and asking for change, uh, first of all, the, the status quo sees, sees you as, you know, well, this is something that should be granted to you, so you better be grateful when we give it, and also you better be on your best behaviour while you're asking for it as well. So I've, I've found that dynamic a little bit infuriating. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not officially in any official manner part of the Yes campaign, but I, I think that I've, that's been quite admirable in terms of how that's been galvanising goodwill, especially in the early days where so many parts of our communities felt really allergic to the idea of going to... I mean, I still feel deeply allergic to it. I think a lot of us feel deeply allergic to what's going on. But I think we, uh, the Yes campaign was really good at fostering goodwill mobilising a lot of different factions within our communities as well and bring us together to the point where the polling is really, really positive now. But, you know, in the, ex- in the, in, in the era of Trump and Brexit, who knows what's going to happen. Yeah, well, maybe let's finish off on that um, in <laughs> terms of what... Oh, like, I mean, sorry, one more question in terms of... This, like, yeah. level of, like, what is next? I, I kind of, you know, the, you said the polling is going good, so let's just imagine that we have a win in the same-sex marriage club aside. It would be different if we have a loss, but let's imagine we have a win there. You know, yeah. what do you think, you know, we have a win, we have marriage equality passed by the end of the year, likely. What do you think the queer community should be doing next? Should we be turning attention back to programs such as safe schools or are there other things we should be doing? What do we take out of all of this? Well, I think in, in terms of, um, you know, our, our community is often... Um, seen as a very disparate bunch of people with a very, very long acronym because that's exactly what we are, right? Mm. And I think that when it comes to what we need to focus on after this, there are probably as many issues as as there are letters in our acronym times 100. I think that when it comes to thinking of um, LGBTIQ rights, I immediately think of people who identify as you know, trans or same-sex attractors who we're currently detaining in environments that are hostile to their very existence, um, hostile on a lot of levels. I think of, I think immediately of, of younger people than myself, and part of that is safe schools, um, but part of that is also the organisations that support them, that are either defunded um, or struggling to maintain the resources that they need to service a growing, growing need from young people. I think of trans people as well, uh, whether they're younger and really struggling to get the um, kind of either psychological or medical support services that they need, or older people who, um, you know, are made to feel very, very vulnerable in their workplaces and communities as well. Um, I think I think in all of this as well, same-sex marriage is often presented as simply an issue for same-sex attracted people, uh, but at the same time, you know, quite absent from this conversation has been how it's very fundamentally a transgender rights issue as well for um, couples who are currently married and facing the option of either their partner affirming their identity officially or going through through forced divorce. 
Um, mm. I think we can start having more complicated, uncomfortable discussions about our community as well. Like, for instance, um, when I've talked about same-sex marriage, a lot of people have told me to shut up when I say I'm not particularly interested in the institution of marriage myself. But the reason I'm on the side of yes is because I'm not ambivalent about discrimination, especially discrimination that's kind of sponsored by, by the government. So, but, but a lot of people have been really, you know, resistant towards, towards that kind of discussion. But I think we should welcome those, those nuanced, complicated debates and discussions, you know, hopefully once once this is out of the way. Well, actually, that's probably a really good place to end on because it's those kind of nuanced, complicated discussions we'd like to have on this podcast. Benjamin, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat. Yeah, thanks for making time, Simon. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you want to hear more from Benjamin Law, you should buy his quarterly essay, Moral Panic 101, at your local bookstore. You can also check him out on Twitter, at Mr. Benjamin Law. We'll be back in two weeks with a regular episode. In the meantime, you can find us on queers.podomatic.com or on Facebook or Twitter at Queers Podcast. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. And please, if you do, leave us a review and rating, which helps other people find us. Also, you should check out the Earbuds Network, which we have recently joined. There are some amazing podcasts on there, and we suggest that you go and check them all out. Don't forget that if you want to, you can also send us an email with questions or comments. You can do so at queerspodcast at gmail.com. You can find Benjamin Riley and myself on our personal social media. Ben is at Ben C. Riley, and I'm at Simon Copland on Twitter, and I'm also at Simon Copland Writer on Facebook. See you all in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Earbuds, Melbourne's podcast network. Earbudsnetwork.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 